You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of his word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Good morning, church. I'm Pastor Josh Seal, and I am the student pastor here at the Field Church. On behalf of our church staff, I just want to say that we, we miss you all and we love you, and we can't wait for the moment that we can gather together once again in person. And while we know that nothing can replace the physical gathering of a church together, we also know that God is using this time for good in many ways. Now, I believe that God is using this time for good by edifying and sanctifying his church from within each individual household. We see the importance of family worship and how necessary it is for your children to see you study God's word and sing praises to him and how important it is to study your word and sing praises with your spouse. I believe God is drawing the lost to himself through times of uncertainty, of disease and death and loss. I believe God is reminding us of our absolute dependence on him not just once a week, but every second of every day. I believe that God is teaching us that the church or church services are not confined to a building, but rather it is part of the believer's spiritual worship to the Lord, regardless of where we are. And although the late, the, what I just said, I believe that God is teaching his church the importance of meeting together, the importance of fellowship together as a church. It's maybe something that we once took for granted. You see, these are just a few things listed that God is using during this global pandemic for good. And so as we look to God's word this morning, I want you to be encouraged. For although the apostle Paul was not physically there with the Colossian church, he was with them in spirit, as he said in Colossians 2 verse 5. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The same is true for us today, church. In Christ, believers are one in spirit, regardless of where we may be physically. So let's rejoice in the Lord today as we look to his word. If you would, wherever you are, please turn with me to Luke chapter nine and look to verses 10 through 17. That's Luke chapter nine, verses 10 through 17. That will be our uh, text today. As you know, Pastor Sam has faithfully led us through the Gospel of Luke for well over a year now. And God has used him to expose the beautiful truths within this text. And I am grateful for the opportunity to occasionally be a part of that teaching as we continue to walk through this book verse by verse. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Sam covered Luke chapter 9, verses 7 through 9. Uh, that would be the verses prior to our text today. He titled his sermon, Jesus is heard about, but not embraced. That's Jesus is heard about, but not embraced. If you remember, as Pastor Sam explained these verses, he explained how the willful ignorance of Herod and others inquiring about Jesus, they did not see him as the Messiah. And frankly, they did not want to. 
Herod wanted to ensure Jesus was not a threat to him and his authority. Others thought Jesus to be a prophet, but none of them embraced him as Messiah. Today, as we move into the next section, which will be verses 10 through 17, we will see the largest miracle to scale in Jesus' ministry besides his resurrection. This miracle is the only miracle that is cited in each of the four gospel accounts, probably because of its deep theological heritage. This miracle links the miracle of manna in Exodus chapter 16. And we will also see how that connects the reason the people want to make Jesus their king here on earth in John chapter six. But now as we look back to the previous parts of Jesus' ministry, we see that he did many, many miracles, many amazing things. And uh, so let's look to some of the things that he did. He cleansed a leper. He healed a paralytic. He healed a centurion's servant who was near to death. He healed a man's withered hand, calmed a storm by simply speaking. He cast out a legion of demons cured a woman who was bleeding for over 12 years. She spent her life earning on physicians and doctors in attempt to be cured from this illness, but it wasn't until Jesus actually healed her that the bleeding stopped. And he also raised a little girl from the dead. All of these miracles are amazing miracles and, are, and they are the reason why people are flocking to Jesus. They are seeking signs and miracles and wonders that Jesus can do but none of them are seeking Jesus as the Messiah. So today we will see in our text that Jesus will demonstrate compassion on a people who do not embrace him as the Messiah. That is, Jesus demonstrates compassion on a people who do not embrace him as the Messiah. But before we read our text, I want us to go to God in prayer and let's beg him and ask him to be here with us to show his word to us and to reveal truths that are in this text today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we have to come together and open your word together, Lord, to read your word and see the beautiful truths that are in your text. Father, I ask that as I uh, read your word and as I uh, expose it to the church, Lord, that it would be true to your text, that I would not say anything out of line or out of bounds. And if I do, Lord, I pray that it would be uh, words that fall on deaf ears. But Father, I pray that you would be with us today and that you would uh, edify and sanctify us through your word, that you would draw us closer to you and that we would be a people that love you more and more each day. So Father, I pray that as we look to your gospel, to your word, that we see the true Messiah, that we see you, and we see and ask ourselves the reasons why we claim and proclaim that you are the son of God, that you are the Messiah. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so like I said, our text today is Luke chapter nine, verses 10 through 17. So if you would, please look with me there, uh, starting in verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida, when the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here 
in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, they were, uh, for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now, as we read this miracle, it could be very easy to overlook the vastness, the, the massive miracle that this was. And that's what it was. This was a massive miracle to show that there is no doubt who Jesus is. And this was partly what the crowd was looking for. Miracles, that is. But in an important detail that we must see from verse 11, as it says, when the crowds learned it, they followed him. We know from Matthew's account that it was not small crowds. This was no small crowd. Matthew 14, 21 says, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So what we see from Matthew's account is that they only counted the men. There were 5,000 men. That's besides the women and children, but the women and children were present. So we know that there is more than 5,000. Now, if we were to look, we don't know the exact number, but we do know that many of the men would have been married and many of them would have had children, some more than one. And so many theologians have estimated, of course, we can't pin this number down to an exact number, but many theologians have estimated that the number would be upwards of 20,000 people. That is insane. That is crazy to think that Jesus takes five loaves of bread and two fish and he feeds the 20,000 people. So I looked up just out of my own curiosity, how many people can fit in the Smoothie King Center in New Orleans? Now, if you're from Louisiana or familiar with the area, you know that that is where the New Orleans Pelicans uh, NBA basketball team play. And so as I looked, the number I found was that the New Orleans uh, Smoothie King Center can fit 17,790 people. And that is still a large number, but what we see is that there was possibly 20,000 people present when Jesus fed them. So like I said before, this was a massive, massive miracle, the largest to scale in Jesus' ministry aside from his resurrection. There's no doubt who Jesus is. At least there should not have been any doubt. So throughout Jesus' ministry, as we have already covered, we see a lot of different things, but what we definitely, definitely see from Jesus' ministry is we see sympathy, compassion, kindness, and love that have all been on display throughout Jesus' ministry from the very beginning. Now in the Old Testament, we see God's compassion as well. We see God's love as well, but we never see it on the scale that we do during Jesus' ministry because Jesus brings God to the world and he displays God's compassion, kindness, and love manifest in the life of Jesus. So Jesus has ministered all around. He has ministered and preached the gospel as he's going about displaying the power that the Messiah must have 
to conquer disease, death, and demons. He did just that. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And Galilee, where they are leaving, Galilee has heard this message and seen his power for months, but they have not embraced him as the Messiah. Only a small amount of people embrace Jesus as Messiah. And what we will also see is that off of this miracle, the one we have just read today, is going to come the defining rejection of Jesus, which will ultimately lead to his crucifixion. And I will show you how today as we dig into this text. We're going to be bouncing around, going from Matthew's account to Mark's account, back to Luke's account, all the way to John's account. We're going to see the different uh, varieties, the different uh, approaches and perspectives that we see from each gospel account. Now, earlier I mentioned how this links to the miracle of manna in Exodus chapter 16. In John's account of this miracle, this is how we understand it. In John's account, towards the end, when John covers this miracle, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 14 through 15, the people were so convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, or not the Messiah, the prophet, promised from Moses in Deuteronomy 18. They said this in John 16, I mean, 6 verse 14, sorry, 6 verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. That's John 6, 14. And they had this in mind, that Moses made this promise to them in Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, the people knowing this promise and having seen Jesus provide the way that he did in Bethsaida, as Moses had done in the wilderness, the people concluded that Jesus was the prophet who is to come into the world, the prophet about whom Moses had spoken. However, we see in John's account, as he adds a very important detail in chapter 6, verse 15. Let's look to chapter 6, verse 15 of John. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see, the people wanted to make Jesus king by force because Moses led Israel out of Egyptian captivity. And now this people wanted Jesus, whom they believed was the prophet like Moses, to free them from Roman occupation or Roman rule. They wanted to make him king by force. The sort of kingship that they had in mind was not the same kingship that Jesus had in mind or that God had in mind by his will. You see, his kingship, Jesus' kingship, is not of this world, and they wanted to make him a worldly king. In John 18, 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world or from the world. Besides, later, in, uh, later Jesus told the crowd that only, the only reason they followed him was because you ate the loaves and had your fill. John 6, 26, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are, at, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You see, Jesus 
from this point, they wanted to make him king, a worldly king. And so Jesus, knowing that this is not the right way that he would be king, he leaves to a mountain by himself because they wanted to make him king of the world. Jesus was not going to be their king here on earth because he was not king in their hearts. Yet, as we see, the people do not embrace him as we saw in John's account towards the end. The people do not embrace Jesus as the Messiah. He still has compassion on them and he still loves them and he still, he still displays this compassion through this massive miracle. So let's look to the very beginning of our text in verse 10 and see how Jesus first shows and displays his compassion toward his disciples or his apostles. Verse 10, let's look. Um, it says, now in verse 10, the apostles are returning. Let's read it again. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. That's the very first sentence of, of verse 10. Now they're returning from the mission or the ministry that Jesus had sent them on. If we were to look back in verse two through six, which we're gonna read in a second, we know that that is where they are returning from, the mission or the ministry that Jesus had sent them out to do. Let's read verse two of chapter nine through six. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So we see that their return, the apostles' return, is them debriefing Jesus on their mission. They are telling Jesus about all of the people that they healed, all the demons that they cast out, how the gospel was proclaimed in every village that they went into. So we see that they were debriefing Jesus on the mission that they just came back from, that Jesus sent them out. Now, we do not know how long that they proclaimed the gospel, but what we do know is that Jesus sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And as we see in verse six, the kingdom of God is the gospel. As they preach and proclaim the gospel, they would be including things like repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 3, 2. But Jesus recognizes an important uh, thing when on their arrival and their return. In verse 10, Jesus recognizes their need. Jesus recognizes the apostles' need for rest. Mark's account sheds a little bit more light on this. So let's look to Mark chapter 6, 30 through 32. It says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. In this verse, we see our first point. Jesus demonstrates compassion toward his disciples' need for rest. As Jesus demonstrates compassion toward his disciples' need for rest. I believe this is both physical and spiritual rest. They had been working for probably around three weeks. We don't know how long, but what we do know is that they had been going into villages, staying in people's homes, going from village to village, town to town, preaching the gospel and casting out demons, healing the sick. This took some time and they needed rest. 
and he had much needed rest. So we know that this took more than a few days. It took probably upwards of two to three weeks. But they were proclaiming the kingdom of God. They were being faithful to what God had, or Jesus had sent them out to do. The apostles did just as Jesus commanded them to do, and they were faithful and worked hard on behalf of the gospel, but they needed rest. Hebrews 4, 9 through 11 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. God rested on the seventh day after he created all things. And he made that day holy. And he also calls us to rest as well. And we know from the disciples' work that they were being faithful. They were doing what Jesus called them to do, but they needed to rest. And so Jesus recognizes that. And now this was also after our account in verse seven through nine, where Herod had been inquiring about Jesus. So Jesus having compassion on his disciples and his, his apostles, they leave. They go northeastern to the part of uh, of Galilee, they go through the Sea of Galilee and they go to the northeastern portion, which is Bethsaida. Now we know this is outside of, of Herod's rule. Herod is, is searching and, lear and learning more and trying to find out more about Jesus as possibly could be that he is trying to imprison him in the way that he did John the Baptist. But they are moving to Bethsaida, which is Herod's brother, Philip. This is, this is his section, his area of rule. And this is also, Philip is also the brother in which his wife was stolen by Herod which John the Baptist rebuked him of and then was thrown in prison and later beheaded. This is that Philip. And so they are in Philip's area outside of Herod's rule, no longer uh, having to worry as much for Herod's uh, seeking more about Jesus, um, but they're in Bethsaida. And what they say about Bethsaida is that it is a desolate place. Now this does not mean that it is a desert place because in Mark's account, verse uh, Chapter 6, 39 through 40, it says that it's a very grassy area and they have them sit down in the grass. So this is not a desert area. This is probably plains full of, of grass and, uh, and other things like that, but it is an open area, meaning it's, it's more lonesome. It's not, it's not populated by towns or houses or people. It's kind of out there, maybe a country hillside or something like that. We also know that Bethsaida is the homeland of some of Jesus' disciples. In John chapter 1, we find that. But what we must look at, the most important thing as we see from our point, our first point in uh, verse 10 of, John, of Luke chapter nine, Jesus says this, Jesus, or Jesus took them and withdrew. What he means by that, Jesus saw their weariness as they come to uh, debrief Jesus on their mission. He sees their weariness, they, they need rest. And so he withdrew them or departed, taking them for a while, from the busyness, from the work, and the people that were continuously coming to them, and he gave them much needed rest. Now their rest only lasted for the time that it took them to get from start point to end point, which is Bethsaida. For the people saw them leaving, and they ran to meet them upon their arrival at Bethsaida. Let's look to verse 11. Verse 11 says, when the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured, uh, cured those who had need of healing. So they followed them. They saw that they were leaving and they followed them. Now, Mark's account gives us a little bit more insight on how they recognized them. So let's look at Mark chapter 6, verse 33. It says, now many saw them going and recognized them. 
and they ran there on foot from all of the towns and got there ahead of them. So we see that they recognized them. Now this could have been as they were getting in the boat and leaving or while they were in the boat and going, but they recognized them. They could have recognized them from the apostles' recent mission that they just returned from, or they could have recognized them because of Jesus' prior months of ministry in the area. Either way, doesn't matter. They recognized them as they were going. And also I would add that the how they recognized them is that they were probably in a smaller boat that caused them to stay along the shoreline within sight of people on the shore. And so they would have been able to observe them on their way and then see and recognize them and follow them on their journey to their final destination, which would be Bethsaida. So they recognize them, they followed them. And once they see their destination, they run ahead of them to meet them there. And also in verse 11, we see our second point. Jesus demonstrates compassion toward those lacking spiritual guidance and protection. As Jesus demonstrates compassion toward those lacking spiritual guidance and protection. In Mark chapter 6, verse 34, we see Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So what does Jesus do? Does he turn the crowd away? I mean, after all, they did leave in the first place in order to get some rest, some much needed rest. Did he turn them away? He could have easily said, now go and come back tomorrow. We will begin tomorrow. But he didn't do that. He has compassion on them, for they are like sheep without a shepherd. Instead, Jesus starts preaching the gospel to them as he had been doing from the beginning of his ministry. He even healed them. Now we see his preaching is the same news, the same gospel that he had been preaching from the very beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter four, verse 43. And it's also the same news that the apostles preached in Luke 9, 2 through 6. So let's read Luke 4, 43 to see this is the same news that Jesus has been preaching. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. In verse 11, we see Jesus welcomed them. He embraced them in their presence. And knowing they were a people like sheep without a shepherd, he preached the gospel to them. He embraced them. He brought them in. He loved them. And he preached the gospel to them. It's something that they needed and they needed to embrace. But we also must address how Jesus welcomes them in verse 11. It says that he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Yes, Jesus cured them physically. They had people who were ill in many different ways and he cured them of those illnesses and those, those sicknesses. But his main compassion for them was much more a compassion toward them being like sheep without a shepherd. I believe Jesus had Ezekiel 34, one through five in mind. Let's read. It says, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, you have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up. 
the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force, force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. You see, Jesus had compassion on them because they had a great spiritual need. They needed to hear and embrace the gospel. They did not have anyone leading them in the truth and they definitely didn't have anyone protecting them from Satan's schemes. So Jesus had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. And so after Jesus preached the gospel to them and healed those who needed healing, we, we read in verses 12 through 17, as, as we look there, let's read it. Verses 12 through 17, he says, Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve <clears throat> came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied and what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. In these verses, we find our third and final point, which is Jesus demonstrates compassion on all. Jesus demonstrates compassion on all. Now we know many are there who do not embrace Jesus as we've already covered. Jesus as the Messiah, they do not embrace him. But he does discriminate, and he, uh, he doesn't, sorry, he doesn't discriminate. He still has compassion on them, as we find in Matthew 5, 45, which says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus was not playing favorites. Although many of them did not and would not embrace him as the Messiah, he still cared for them and all who were there. He still provided for all of their needs, healed them, gave them food. So now as we look to verse 12, we have to question or ask, well, what purpose does this verse have? It gives us a time. It gives us a moment that we can figure out. Verse 12 says, now the day began to wear away. We don't know the exact time, but this was definitely afternoon because as we know, during noon is where the sun is at its highest point. And when it goes past noon, the sun begins to decline or wear away and go down. So this is around afternoon time, possibly closer to the evening, but the sun was still up. And so this gives us a little bit of that perspective as we see. Um, and then also when the day began to wear away, the apostles wanted Jesus to send the people away so they could find food and lodging. That makes us understand that most and many of the people here were not local. 
We know from the beginning that many of them saw them, recognized them, and followed them from their current destination. They left their towns, they left their homes, and went to meet them in Bethsaida, which was a desolate or an open place that didn't have villages and food and lodging around. So many of them were probably many miles away from their homes. And so the disciples were concerned a little bit more about whether they would have something to eat or a place to stay. They must have forgotten all that Jesus had done and they must have had, had, had other things in mind and worries. So let's look to see how Jesus addresses this. He tests his disciples and their faith. Mark 6, 26 through 38 says, send them away. This is the disciples speaking to Jesus. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five loaves and two fish. Now in John's account, we realize that, or we find that they found the five loaves and two fish from a young boy, probably had it for his family. But they were more worried how they would provide for these people. 200 denarii was around eight months worth of wage for a person. So they were, they were saying if we were to even spend 200 denarii, eight months worth of pay, this would still not be enough for everyone here to even get a little. It would not even be enough for that. And the other accounts we see Jesus did this to test his disciples as I had said prior. And they also must add that during this time in John's account, the Passover feast of the Jews was at hand. So this is during the springtime, hence the, the green grass and the other ones. Uh, but this was around toward the end of March and the beginning of April. So it was during springtime because the Passover, what that is, is a yearly festival remembering their ancestors, their forefathers who were delivered out of Egyptian slavery, we, which only adds to the reason why they wanted to make him king after he did this during the Passover time. And, uh, and so we see that there's, a, there's amazing theological, deep theological truths that are connected all throughout this miracle. But instead of sending them away, Jesus does what only he can do. He provides for all the people that are there. And he, he does it out of compassion and love for the people. So this is an amazing account. Let's read what Mark's account says. And taking the five loaves, so this is as Jesus takes the loaves that they have, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. From the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus multiplies the food and feeds the upwards of 20,000 people. This is amazing. Now we must close the sermon and I want to explain a little bit about why I titled it Jesus Demonstrates Compassion to a People Who Do Not Embrace Him as the Messiah. You can very easily read over Luke's account and say towards the end that, wow, this was great. This was amazing. He did a great thing and the people must have believed. I'm sure some did. Some probably did, but we will find that the majority of them did not embrace Jesus as Messiah. Let's look at the three points that we had, and then we're going to get into the, the, the detail of why. 
The first point was Jesus demonstrates compassion toward his disciples, his disciples' need for rest. Jesus demonstrates compassion toward those lacking spiritual guidance and protection. And Jesus demonstrates compassion toward all. So as I said, we could very easily have read over this miracle in Luke's account and said that this was great. Many must have believed, but most of them didn't. As I read earlier in John's account, John chapter six, towards the end, they wanted to make Jesus king, a king that met their expectations. They wanted to make him a worldly king who would deliver them from their oppressors, the Roman rule. So as we, we need to turn just a couple of pages, if you would, with me to Luke chapter 10, verse 13 through 15. And we will see how this comes to, to life or truth as we see why I titled it in the way I did. So Luke chapter 10, verse 13 through 15, if you would look there with me, it says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. We see that they did not repent and believe in Jesus for salvation. They only wanted Jesus for selfish reasons. I will quote in just a second from a well-known pastor, a well-respected pastor called Paul Washer here in just a second, but they did not embrace Jesus as the Messiah. They wanted to make him a king that met their expectations, that they wanted Jesus to be who they wanted him to be. And so now as I quote Paul Washer, what he said in the sermon a while back, he said, if you want to follow Jesus because he'll fix your marriage, if you want to follow Jesus because he'll give you a better life, that's idolatry. Follow Christ for the sake of Christ. He is worthy. Church, we must remember why we look to Jesus. We must remember why we proclaim and confess Jesus as Lord. After this, after the miracle account, let's look down to what Jesus says or questions to his disciples in Luke chapter nine, verse 18 through 20, just after the miracle account. Luke chapter nine, 18 through 20, it says, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered the Christ of God, the Messiah of God, the anointed of God. And then we look to the very next section, Luke 9, 23 through 24, which says, and he said to all who were present during this time, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Church, we must remember ourselves, uh, remind ourselves daily why we confess Jesus as Lord. 
We follow Christ for the sake of Christ because he is worthy. That is why we follow Christ. That is why we proclaim Christ. That is why we need Christ because he is infinitely worthy, infinitely good and perfect. And we are a people of sinful desires, sinful life. We are a sinful people and we need a savior. Now that is Jesus, the Christ of God. And so as we look to him, we must not be like the people after this miracle who look to him to make him a king of their expectations. We must not look to Christ for the reasons of making our life better or getting rid of the hard things in our life or even making our marriage better. We must look to Christ for the sake of Christ because he is infinitely worthy. And he is the one and the only one who can deliver us and forgive us of our sins. So church, as we reflect on this section, this massive and amazing miracle, let's stay in our homes. Let's talk to our families. Let's remind each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, the exact reason why we follow Christ, the exact reason why we proclaim him as Messiah. It is because he is the Messiah. He is the Christ of God and he is worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory. He will not be the worldly king we want him to be. He will not be a genie in the bottle. He will not be one who fixes our downfalls. He will be one who saves us from death. So church, as we reflect on this wonderful miracle that Jesus performed, let's go to him in prayer and let's thank him for his beautiful word and how he has uh, just given it to us, how we have a Bible so easily readily available to each one of us that we can open every single day in our own homes, that we can read with our family members, that we can teach to our children and, Lord, and that we can pray back to our God. So let's go to him in prayer and let's thank him. And, uh, and I just pray that this will be something that you reflect on or you're able to teach to your kids at home. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for this time for your word, for the truths within this text, Lord. I thank you for how you have revealed yourself through just the amazing words, the, the truth, the miracles that you have performed. But Lord, I just thank you that you have made yourself available to a sinner like me. And Father, I pray that as we reflect on your word today from this text, that we would remember that we should not be looking to you in our own personal and worldly expectations, we should be looking to you and praising you for who you are because you are worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. Father, I pray that as we reflect on this miracle, that it would be something that reminds us daily that you are the Messiah, that you are the Son of God, and that you are worthy of all of our praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.